0: Welcome to TNS, The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with host Michael Lerner and Attitudinal Healing founders Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Cerencioni-Jampolsky. This is part one of a two-part conversation titled, Attitudinal Healing, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life.
1: Jerry Jampolsky, Diane Cirencioni jampolsky welcome to The New School at Commonweal. Thank
2: you. We feel very welcome.
1: I will introduce you both briefly. And, um, and this is very much, I want to emphasize, a, a, a joint conversation with you both. You um, are a married couple. Um, you have worked together as equals for many years. Um, we, my wife Charlotte and I were uh, very grateful to come join you at your houseboat in Sausalito for brunch uh, about eight weeks ago, something like that and before that you came out here to Commonweal to visit um, and last night we had dinner with you, um, so it's been a process of, of getting to know you both. Um, and what's fascinating, I was just reflecting on the fact that, um, Jerry, when your life changed in May 1975, when you encountered The Course in Miracles, and we'll talk more about that, uh, that was almost exactly the same time that I had the vision of Commonweal. And it's so fascinating that we have worked really in parallel for 40 years, separated only by Mount Tam and <laughs> but with amazingly parallel visions. Um, and so the gift of getting to know you both while we're both while we're all still on this planet in these bodies, is a tremendous gift. And I want to say, um, as I have read your books over the last uh, eight weeks, um, um, and as I um, reflected this morning, I just think um, you've made such a contribution to the world together. And um, it's inspiring to me and inspiring for our work here at Commonweal, because I think we have a great deal to learn from. you, Jerry, you are uh, the founder of Attitudinal Healing. You're the inspiration behind it. You graduated from uh, the medical school at Stanford. And you founded the first Center for Attitude and the Healing in Marin in 1975 so that people of all ages, faiths, and cultures who are facing illness, catastrophic events, loss, and life challenges could have free support services. Since then, a global network of centers in dozens of countries have, has emerged, offering individuals, families, organizations, and communities tools for transformation in times of great challenge. Um, Diane, uh, you are the Founder and Executive Director of Attitudinal Healing International. Uh, You hold a Master's degree in uh, Counseling Psychology and a PhD in Clinical Psychology. You're the President of the Jampolsky Outreach Foundation uh, that supports attitudinal healing worldwide. Uh, You are a businesswoman, therapist, lecturer, and co-author with Jerry of seven books in multiple languages, and you worked in 61 countries and founded six companies. Uh, You've traveled extensively internationally in this work, and uh, also through children as teachers of peace. You co-founded the National AIDS Hotline for Kids, Uh, uh, along, which created along with the World Health Organization uh, the maxim I have AIDS, please hug me. I can't make you sick. And you've co-produced three documentaries and received many humanitarian awards, including, and I just picked these out, the Jehan Sadat Peace Prize, the Gandhi King Season for Nonviolence Award. Um, So This work that began in May 1975, um, to your surprise, really, has traveled all around the world. So, Diane, I'd actually like to start with you um, with a very simple question. What is attitudinal healing?
2: Well, we we always stay away from any kind of pat answers or something that's memorized, but uh, I think it's basically the realization that it's ultimately not other people or experiences from the past that are causing me to be upset in the moment, but it's my thoughts, attitudes, and judgments about that that cause me the distress, and that we have the ability within each of us to really explore our belief systems, to change our minds. We never suggest what someone changes their mind to. We help people understand the workings of their mind, that belief systems are not set in concrete, but there's a moving picture and about how we perceive and project and create a reality around us that we see. And if you don't like that reality, that you can change what you see, not through any denial, but um, it's it's the belief that, that we can have a goal of inner peace, which is a continuity in what we think and say and do, um, as opposed to multiple goals. These are like intentions in the world, but to set our goal as inner peace. We believe in the power of forgiveness of the self and other. And um, would you want to add to that, Jerry? Nope, I think that's, I mean, there's lots of ways we can describe it, um, but that's pretty much it. And you can choose, Peace over conflict, the belief that you can choose love over fear, that love is always more powerful than fear, Um, and that you can, um, you teach love by being the example of it, not by apostatizing it, but just actually living it in your own life. And that also the experience of the other as you see it, there's a part of that that is a part of you. So everything we see in the world, we have a relationship with, and what you do with that relationship, you have a choice. So a lot of it's about the idea that you can uh, choose how you see the world at any given time. You can see someone as fearful uh, giving a call of help as opposed to someone who's attacking. Mm -hmm. So change your mind and you can change your life. Mm -hmm.
1: And having spent a little time with you both, uh, one of the things that is often striking to me is how much you can learn just from... There's this wonderful line, um, which I th- actually I think we talked about um, about the rabbinical student who uh, in Russia, who uh, one of the other students of this rabbi that they both uh, were studying with asked him what teaching of the rabbis he found most powerful, and the rabbinical student said, "I just like to watch the way he ties his shoes." <laughs> the and way he
2: does <laughs>
1: The way he ties his shoes, you know, and and that's always struck me because, mm. as i 've watched the way the two of you tie your shoes um, it's um, it 's very congruent with what you are saying in the world you know there 's not a big gap between your shoelace uh, i'm
2: so glad to hear that
1: <laughs> your shoelace uh, practices and your uh, and your teaching jerry um, Tell us about that day in May 1975, when your life changed.
3: Well, I think I'd like to go before that. Sure. And um, a landmark uh, about giving my power away to other people was that I flunked kindergarten. (laughs) 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 And they hadn't diagnosed me as dyslexia but I was a very clumsy kid uh, always bumping into things smelling milk all that kind of stuff and a lot of criticism from my parents because I wasn't like my two older brothers and uh, so it kind of verified what I was already thinking that I was stupid and uh, that thought uh, remained with me for many many years and uh, in those days when I barely got into UC Berkeley, uh, and you could get in in those years with a D minus average, <laughs> <laughs> but I had to take a, a English examination, which of course I flunked, and I had to take a dumbbell English course, and in the last day of the course. I not only got a D minus, but D minus, minus, minus. (laughs) Which I think was pretty close to being flunked. And um, my professor came up the last day of the week, last day of the course, and said, Jan Polsky, I don't know what you're going to do in life, but for God's sakes, don't ever try to write a book. (laughs) And of course, I knew he was right. You know, I didn't have any grammar. I couldn't spell. Uh, And um, it wasn't until 1950, when I was 50 years old, that I I decided not to give my power away. And that I would write a book. And uh, so that was a miracle for me. But getting back to you, directly to your question what happened in 1975, uh, a little bit before that, a good friend of mine was killed in an automobile accident. And uh, the rabbi I had very soon thereafter became a shop a uh, stockbroker. And I thought he had some doubts in God, too. And I became a militant atheist for a long time because so I thought there couldn't be a loving God that would allow this thing to happen. So, when uh, 1975, when our friend uh, Judas Scott Whitson introduced the manuscript, it hadn't been published then of A Course in Miracles, and asked me to read it. And I said, "Well, you know, I don't like big books. What's it about?" <laughs> well, she said, "It is a book, big book, but it's a book about spirituality and uh, changing your life." And I said, Judy, you know, I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. You know, I'm a militant atheist. I'm not interested in that junk. And she said, well, would you just read one page? And I really didn't know how to answer that question and get out of it. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll read this one page. And I had never heard an inner voice in my life before then. But after reading one paragraph... There was an inner voice in my heart saying, Physician, heal thyself. This is your way home. And then I had an experience that I've never really been able to put in words adequately, but it was an experience of the presence of God and that my life was going to be devoted to service and uh, that God would be with me all the way. So that's how it started. You know,
1: you tell this story beautifully in uh, in this book, Out of Darkness, Into the Light, A Journey of Inner Healing. And um, again, the parallels in our lives are fascinating. We're both um, children of immigrants, of uh, uh, families from Russia, um, and... Um, your uh, parents came to the United States, and um, and as you describe it, uh, were struggling desperately to raise uh, your your uh, your brother, your their three their three children, and uh, and to make sure because they hadn't been able to go to school. Your father never went to school. Your mother had very limited education. That. That, that, that their children would go to school and do well. Um, and so you describe uh, growing up, uh, not only with a sense uh, because of your learning disabilities that you were stupid, but also that uh, life was fearful, that today was terrible, that tomorrow's gonna to be worse, and that, um, that you were always being hurried and, and just a very dark view of the world, a very dark view of the world. And then uh, the, the learning disability after your two brothers had both excelled in school, and you were the youngest brother and, you know, really were convinced you were stupid. And um, uh, because these were the days before learning disabilities were recognized and so forth and so on. So, um, and then, but somehow, and you don't really describe this in detail. Uh, This learning disabled child managed to get through school, managed to get into medical school, managed to complete medical school, managed to, uh, you know, uh, find a mentor and a surgeon who wanted you to, was your first real father figure and wanted you to go into surgery because you had very nimble hands. But you said, no, you wanted to go into psychiatry, Um, uh, went into psychiatry, uh, became... Very successful, but also in your personal life, uh, went through a marriage, uh, went through another relationship, uh, just uh, had a tremendous inner sense of uh, personal desperation and uh, were drinking heavily and uh, had suicidal thoughts. So that was the background, as I understand Of this extraordinary experience. It wasn't, you weren't somebody who had a spiritual orientation toward life. Who found the course in miracles and had affirmed it. You went from heavy alcohol, drinking, despair about personal relationships. uh, And this struggle. Into this completely transformed world.
2: I think there was the real gift also, though, Jerry, if you would, could you just share about how you stopped drinking?
3: Well, becoming a student of a Course of Miracles didn't stop me from drinking. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of doubts of my ego about what I mean... Hood week to do this thing, and was it really valid the, the president and, uh, did Jesus really write this and all that kind of stuff? And um, I think it was about three months later, maybe around two in the morning, I was awakened by a voice again saying that uh, you're in a new state of healing, and it's now time for you to stop drinking. And I thought I was going to have the DTs in the next moment. Uh, and I did what any normal American guy would do. I repressed. it. <laughs> and then when I came home the next night, I did what I always do. Got my scotch bottle, filled it with ice, poured the scotch in it, Started to put it to my mouth and heard the voice again saying, Did you not hear me? (laughs) It's stopped drinking and uh, going to work spiritually. And I put the bottle down and I've not had any alcohol since.
1: It reminds me, of course, of. Bill W.'s um, experience in Alcoholics Anonymous with Carl Jung, when he went to Jung and asked how you could beat alcoholism, and Jung said, you have to find an addiction higher than this one. And he said,
2: That's a great go
1: go home and look into a spiritual um, road. So um, Diane, um when I was preparing for this, I mentioned to you last night that I ran across the fact that your mother uh, died at I think the age of ninety-four.
2: That's correct. Yes. Um,
1: uh, not long ago, actually. Two years ago. Yeah, uh, she lived in Mill Valley in one of the retirement communities there, and. Um, And we had the pleasure also of having your sister, Catherine, and her husband, Jerry, Mm -hmm. uh, join us for dinner last night. Catherine is a very gifted artist and longtime resident of uh, West Marin and of Bellinas, actually, uh, for a long time, and is here today with Jerry. And we welcome you both. Um, So tell us a little bit about... uh, your life, um, Jerry started with flunking kindergarten, so that might be a good place to start. But tell us a little about your life. Uh, what what kind of family did you grow up in?
2: Oh, well, it was my brother who was dyslexic, and he was left back in the second grade and the sixth grade and the, and, the, and in high school, and he was quite, quite a genius. Mm-hmm. And so he had undiagnosed dyslexia, too, a different form than Jerry Um uh, I come from, uh, I proudly identify as Italian American. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, as of this year, through the efforts of my dear sister, Catherine, uh, Dr. Catherine Cincinnati Coles, we now are also Italian citizens mm-hmm. by way of our, our paternal grandmother's experiences. Um, so I was raised in New York, mm-hmm. as you were and in different parts, in the Bronx and then Long Island. And uh, my parents were uh, working class, also did not have the benefit of um, education. Uh, uh, both my parents were. I think, went to the eighth grade. My mother was made to go to work, etc. But they always valued education very much. And they'd worked two, three jobs to uh, make sure their children had the opportunities to have a good education. I remember when we moved from New York, I was like in the fifth grade, uh, going in the fifth grade out to Long Island to a place called Lake Ronkonkoma, which seemed like the end of the world, but it was just the beginning, it was so beautiful. Um, our parents found the school first and tried to get us into the Catholic school there, which they succeeded in getting at least two of us in at the time. And um, uh, actually, we, we, yeah, we all went to that school. And it was, it, it, even as, as a 10-year-old, it was like, oh, wow. The school is more important than even where they live. And that's a really big message. That was a very, very um, uh, generous message from my parents. They worked sometimes two jobs each, and um, they had their challenges in their relationship. And uh, we always knew that we were loved, as you were saying the other day. And uh, because of the experiences of my childhood, um, each each piece of it now I see is such a gift. Um, tr- trying to understand my father's personality and his mood swings, et cetera. And, and in that desire to come to know him, even when he died when I was 19, I didn't feel like I knew him at all. I remember saying to Catherine at the funeral at the house that day, I said, oh my God, he's gone and I, and I don't know him. Mm. And so I think I spent the next year's trying to find him through in myself about healing relationships. And it was an incredible journey, and I'm so grateful for it. Um, And in the healing of that journey, I remember in Canada, we were doing a lecture one time, and it was on healing relationships, and I had shared something about my dad, a poem that was very healing for me. I had a real transformational moment. And someone came up later, a woman who was, I guess, quite gifted, and she described my father right here exactly down to you kind of look like Robert a young Robert de Niro it and she said your father was right there and I said it's interesting you say it because I always feel him with me like I feel him now mm-hmm. so the hard, the hard um, experiences were became incredible gifts and to me that's the mandala of forgiveness when you realize ah you know this is the gift that I've been given here and I'm grateful for my partnership with him in this life my mother was one of the really great influences on my life I think the three most powerful influences on my life I will have Jerry in a category all by himself because we've had 35 years together Uh, uh, my mother my sister Catherine and, and in a smaller way Robert Mueller He used to be Assistant Secretary General of the UN. When he, I first heard him speak of the world from a global perspective, his World Core curriculum. I thought, oh, it's not like my world here. It's like, how do you relate? Whatever you do, how does it relate to the rest of the world? So going back to my mother, she. um, Someone interviewed me once. They were interviewing women about the influences in their lives and their mothers. What did their mother? And some people, as you know, have really. Hard and harsh experiences with mothers. I wasn't one of them. Um, And they asked me the three things that my mother taught me. And one of the biggest things that she taught me was gratitude. She would always say, Be grateful for for your life and what happens, no matter what it is. So I learned that, oh, it doesn't matter if it's like a good or a bad thing, just be grateful because you're going to learn from it. So gratitude, she was always grateful. Um, Unconditionally loving. Uh, My mother died when I was 68. And as I said at her funeral, I've never known actually one minute that I wasn't unconditionally loved by my mother. And that's really quite an extraordinary thing to say. And... um, respect for other people that were different. We were raised Catholic, very, very serious Catholic family. Um, she always said, though, the people that go to that church or go to that synagogue or don't go anywhere, they have their beliefs too. You must always respect their beliefs. Even if you don't agree with them or don't understand them, do always respect other people. And I guess the fourth thing I'd say that molded my life um, people say, well, where did you get your sense of uh, service? My parents, both of them, always um, always were helping other people. My father was like in the St. Vincent de Paul, and I remember he would visit people in prison and uh, help other families. And my mother was always going and helping other families that had problems and children and and washed their floors and i mean she she just did it it's just who she was and so looking to be where we can be of service i'd say that was my my childhood the great influences of my life and i'd say my sister catherine i don't want to embarrass her but she's such an extraordinary woman she's very courageous uh, to in in how she thinks and how she faces the world that has never gone for what's popular or what's comfortable, but what's true for her and has inspired me to do the same. When it wasn't so safe for me to do that before. But I feel that's a big part of my life now. But thank you for asking. Mm, yeah. It touches me in my heart. I feel really blessed mm-hmm. to have my family.
1: So you both have a, a wonderful story about how you met. And I would love to, to oh. have you share it in any way that the two of you would like to do that, because it's really a, a
3: great... A
2: celestial matchmaking yeah. is what it was.
3: <laughs> well, it started with your writing, then.
2: I had been doing... I met Jerry in 1981, so we just... Had, last weekend was our 35th year together um and i in 1979 i had a flash from the sun sort of a a moment where um the old higher part of me whatever it is came through and i just started writing i didn't know anything about any of this i'd never been to a workshop i never did anything but i always had a spiritual core always i should have mentioned that before always have had faith and a spiritual core even though the theology has changed um, and uh, I was writing, and uh, by the second year I was doing it, um, I was working seven days a week, or running three companies with my partner, and um, uh, I was living in Tiburon, where Jerry lived. It's a little town, as we know, over in Southern Marin. And I had never met Jerry. The center was new. I knew there was a center that worked with kids, but didn't know anything about it. It wasn't involved in the community. And I got a message um, in my, my writing to give something to the one who works with children. Well, the only one I have heard of that worked with children was the center and Jerry and I I did, I thought, I don't have anything to give to this person. And- um, Can, Can I interrupt? Yes.
3: Because what you're leaving out was, you began to think you were crazy.
2: I did. Yes. I remember having lunch with Catherine one time and, and she said, you're sure you're all right? Maybe you should see someone, you know? And I, and I wasn't sure I was all right, really, actually. I, I After that conversation, I was like, God, maybe I'm really crazy. I don't know. But, it, it, but what this writing did was teach me. It was teaching me spiritual truths and actually saying many things about the future, of which I thought, oh my God, this is really crazy grandiose thinking. Of course, all of it's come true, but I didn't know at the time. And um, I was very much a hermit. I didn't really... um, I was a social person, but didn't have a social life. And so um, I said to this voice. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to stick my hand in this big batch of writing, and if there's anything, because he said to give the writing, if there's anything that makes sense, I'm going to do it. Otherwise, forget this whole meditation. So I stuck my hand in, and I pulled out the only thing that ever, I ever wrote about death. One piece. And I thought, oh, this person works with dying kids. I guess that's, so I put a little note on it. I always put the time, it was like 4 a.m., and, um, but I didn't and I said you work with you know children that are dying, and maybe this could my guidance was to give this to you. And I didn't sign it because I didn't have any guidance to sign it. I opened up the telephone book and got Jerry's address. And so it was early in the morning, I'll never forget, it was a Saturday, and I, I folded it up, put it in his mailbox, and then went down to my office to you know do some work. And then I got a call at nine o'clock from a friend of mine that said, you know, I have these tickets to the Continuum series in the city. I didn't know what that was, but she mentioned Kenneth Pelletier and Kenneth's work on biofeedback, and I did know about psychic phenomena and remote viewing. That I have had some experience with, and so I said, oh, okay. So I wound up going into the city that day, and in the meantime, Jerry, this was a Sunday because you had already gone to your mailbox on Saturday, but you had guidance to go to your mailbox
0: that day. You're listening to part one of a two-part TNS conversation with Cherry Jampolsky and Diane Cherncioni-Jampolsky.
3: Yeah, I, I had been working in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. At that time, there was maybe for a whole year, um, teenagers had been kidnapped and, and, and murdered. And uh, I came in as a consultant. And um, one of the brothers of someone who was murdered, and, uh, and the nurse came out with me and, To stay for about a week. And uh, they were there that Sunday. And uh, I had already gone to my mailbox on Saturday. And it was rather unusual. I'm saying I'm going to go go get into on Sunday to pick up my mail. And there's this writing from whoever it was that just inspired me and moved me to tears. It was just beautiful. And. I really hadn't seen anything that beautiful about death and dying before. And so I, I put it in my, I was wearing a suit at the time, my coat pocket. And then I've been doing my best to listen to an inner voice tell me what to think, say, and do. In the middle of the lecture, it said, take out that letter. And I mentioned that someone had left it there, and I, I read the letter.
2: Well, uh, so I went to the conference and and did not know until Jerry came out that he was going to be there. But when he came out, I had no reaction. I just saw him and and I was touched by the work with the boy and with the and with the path the woman. And um, the only thing I I didn't have any reaction at all. I was sitting way up in the stands. But I asked. I said, so when he pulled out this writing and he started to read it. I said, so in my mind, I said, what does this mean? And the voice was so clear. It said, it's just to show you that you're not crazy, that there's value in your writing. And I went, oh, well, thank you very much. That was, that was it. So then after the lecture, I just left. And it was great. It was like what I came for. And so another half year went by. And, um, and I wrote something that morning also. And it said... Go to the one that works with the children. He knows you, and he's going to take you out in the world. And I'm going, I'm not going out. I said it out loud. I'm not going out in the world. <laughs> and I was. it was frightening, and I shared it with my partner, and uh, who I was working with, living with, and in relationship with, too. And so it was, it was challenging, although I knew I was leaving soon. And um, he said, well, you should go. And I said, well, I'm not going. So I just shoved it away and forgot about it. I didn't forget about it, but he just shoved it away. And another month went by, and now we're in August, I guess, and um, August twentieth. And I, it was a Thursday morning. I'm driving downtown Tiburon. I used to live up on the hill, and to my office, which was at the other end. And I go, I make the right turn on Main Street. You know where you all know where that is. And it's uh, six thirty in the morning, and my Jaguar stopped dead, and. Uh, which Kathy and Jerry I know my Jaguar had a personality of its so own. It would just stop when it wanted to. And it, it stopped in the middle of the road. There was nobody on the road. There was a, a limousine and a little yellow car. And I had one of these experiences I've had maybe four times in my life. And that is, I feel a hand on my neck and on my back. And it means movement. And I sat there and I said, I don't need to do this. I have a choice. And I thought, but I will. I'm, I'm going to do it. I left the car on the road. I got out of the car. I started walking. And I had never been down by where the center was. I didn't even know where it was. And I start going down to the Angel Island Ferry Dock. And on the right side is where Jerry's office was for 40 years. I didn't know. And it didn't have a sign. It had a blue door with a rainbow on it. And, And I found myself knocking on this door at 6.30 in the morning with a completely split mind. Part of me is going... Are you insane? And then the other part went, just knock on the door. So it was this conflict here. I knocked on the door. And when Jerry opened the door, Jerry had been seen. I didn't know then. He saw a client uh, at 6.30 on Thursday mornings for years. Someone who was a great friend of Patsy Robinson's, of John. He opens the door. And as he opened the door, It's as if you had a million kilowatts of light inside the room and that just burst out in this light so bright that I could barely see him. It was a fog and I couldn't hear. I could hardly hear him for a couple of months, actually. It was, uh, so there was a, I don't know what it was, but I could see him, but he was kind of like in a fog and I could see his mouth and barely hear him saying, can I help you? And I'm thinking to myself, where am I? And, and he, he said, can I help you? And, I, and the voice said, just tell him you have writing, this writing. And I go, oh, my God, I'm not going to say that to this person. But it's, I said, I have this writing to share with you. And he said, I said, my guidance is to share some writing with you. And then he said, what was your name? And I couldn't say my name. I couldn't get it out. And what came out was my spiritual name, which is Anaya. And, and he said, can you come back at 8 o'clock, I think. Um, I said, OK. And I walked away. I went to my office. I remember I was, in, I was cleaning my office that day. I had my old shirt jacket with a stain. I mean, never forget this. The sole of my shoe was kind of flipping off because it was my cleaning clothes. And my hair was pulled straight back. And not the way you meet the love of your life. And... Um, <laughs> Anyway, so, you, and I came back at 8 o'clock, but then you might want to share what you experienced, Sherry. Slightly different version.
3: Well, as you obviously have already observed, Diane is much more advanced in spirituality than I am, and I had a testosterone reaction. <laughs> but as she came to, to see me, there was an eager voice that kept talking to me and saying, look, Sherry, You've had, none of your situations have moved, have been healed with, with women. And you have spent the last six months being a monk. You've been celibate. Don't let this lady come back to see you. She'll take you off your spiritual pathway. <laughs> <laughs> so I was rather surprised at the very end of the interview. Like I said, well, there's more to talk about. Would you like to come back and see me again? <laughs> yeah, that was it, yeah.
2: But I, and I should say, in 1979, two years before Jerry met me, he had gone to a very gifted psychic, and we have a transcribed uh, transcription of the, of the reading. And um, she described me in great detail. She said, you know, this, this young woman will come into your life. You'll know her by this and that.
3: I think I'll do a postscript to that, then You're welcome. And, uh, and um, that is uh, Diana allowed me to tell other people about her writing, but not to tell who she wrote it. So for about a year, I began to do that. And then one night, I had laryngitis, but showed up because I wanted to see my body. And I asked you, would you please uh, read your own poetry? And you said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then uh, I said, have you prayed on that? And you said, well, no, I haven't. And you prayed on it, and... You got a yes. And it was this like she'd been on stage with that kind of poise all, all of her life. And I think it was about a year later that she agreed to do a, a talk with me at the University of California in Irvine. And when we got there, her name was not on the program. And Diane blew her top. So I'm not going to go in there. My name's not on there. Yeah, said well
2: before you say that, I should tell them look, my state of mind was I was just scared to death. I did I had was really reluctant. And I used to think Jerry used to say to me, You should do something on the state. And I said, because he wanted to keep me close to him. So when I finally said yes to do that, and then I got down there, and I hadn't yet gone back to school and didn't have degrees, it was a university. I was intimidated, I didn't know what we were gonna talk about. I was about it was good by the guilt at the time. And um but I was really scared. So when we saw that outside the hall, I said, I said, I'm not going in there. My name, they don't, nobody wants to see me. I don't want to go there, you know? And, um, and then can I share what you said to me, Jerry? Whatever you want. Jerry said to me, he said, well, Diane, even if your name was on there, this is a life changing moment for me. Sorry, we're sharing it. Even if your name was on there, you, you wouldn't have to go in. I said, well, fine, I'm not going in. And, um. I realized how scared I was. I was really frightened. And then Jerry sat down next to me and he said, can I ask you a question? I said, what? And he said, why did you come here today? And I thought for a moment. And I said, I came here to give love. And then he said, are you capable of doing that? And I said, Yes, I know how to do that. And he said, that is all you will ever be required to do. He said, I may see you at the end of the day. I may see you in the audience. I may see you on the stage. I love you. And he got up and he walked away. And it was one of those life-changing moments and I thought, I'm just going to trust in the way that my love needs to be given today. And I went in and I went on the stage and that was the beginning of our work together. And whenever, whenever um, I have felt a nervousness come up, if it's Madison Square Garden, whatever it is, CNN doesn't matter, I always go back to that moment and then I and we do that healer's prayer. why am I here? I'm here just to be truly helpful. And I'm here to give love. I can do that. I don't know all the other stuff. That's why we never have a script in what we do. But it was so life changing that um, for you know the 33 years now that we've been working together on the stage, 95, 98 percent of the time, it uh, it just kept keeps in perspective what it's all about. And um, so that was we were just in Irvine last weekend on our anniversary. It was interesting, and. Uh, uh, I am really grateful for that experience. It was one of those moments that changes you forever.
3: Want to tell them why we were in nearby?
2: Last weekend? Oh, well, it was actually the anniversary for the Miracle Distribution Center, uh, which is a wonderful course in miracles gathering. And um, we were there to, to give a talk on aging with attitude. And I'll let Jerry share how we you began
3: get, it. You have the book
2: here? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no. It's our... Her new book just came out, Aging with Attitude. Yeah, So, a well, little promo. And um, it's on Amazon and everything. But you, do you want to share about how you, you started it? This was Jerry's idea. This was not my idea. <laughs> I, was like, I was terrified again, though.
3: Well, I'm to blame, I guess. Thank God I don't believe in blaming.
2: And yeah, and guilt. It really works. Yeah. <laughs>
3: uh, I think I mentioned this in the book that uh, I started the center with one liner saying, and a little child shall lead them. And I've had a lot of experience with little kids to see how happy they are, how they're wonderful teachers of giggling for no reason at all how they don't know the difference between yesterday and tomorrow. Uh, and uh, how, they, how much of innocence that they let us all know about. And uh, so I do my best at keeping that imagery in my mind, in my heart every day. So in doing that, I said Diane, why don't we do something that's kind of outrageous to so that, uh, you know, we don't believe that aging is real, that that spiritually it's ageless, and that uh, why don't we do what we've been doing every morning for a while, and that is at 5.30 in the morning, we do swing dancing to um, uh, in the mood.
2: Glenn Miller's
3: in
2: the mood at 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) We get up at like 4.
3: So I said... Why don't we do that? Why, why, do, why don't we open up with that? They wouldn't be expecting us to do that. And saying uh, that, that, that maybe we don't have to have so many limits on what we do. If we're not, we we uh, we don't we believe that we're bodies, that we're spirit. Why don't we just be spirit and just have a good time and and and, and create a sense of joy and inspiration?
2: Yeah, and I think that is what we did do. It wound up. It's the stage, of course, was like a little smaller than this. <laughs> At one point, son Lee was over here, and he jumped up. He thought Jerry was going to go off the stage. And um, but we did start it with that. And the beauty was for me, the way I finally came to terms with it was two things. One, my mother taught me how to swing dance and had to dance like that in the kitchen doing the dishes, and I always thought, okay, mom, this is for you. And then. Um, The morning before, I realized, oh, there's perfection in the imperfection of it. It was so imperfect. It was hilarious. And um, it was joyful. And we did it. It was really fun. It was to show it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. It only matters where your heart is. And um, so that's how we opened up last weekend.
3: That was one of your mother's teachings. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really
2: matter,
3: right. In in the last years of her life.
2: Yeah.
3: The other thing that occurs to me about your mom that I remember is that she began to have memory challenges. And after a while, it's now bothered her, but then one time she came visiting us and said, you know, Using your memory isn't that bad. I no longer can remember what I'm upset about. (laughs) I really like that way that she's able to turn that around. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things
1: that that fascinates me about your work is that the transformative experience for you originally, Jerry, was uh, being this depressed angry atheist psychiatrist <laughs> who uh, who just uh, you know was drinking and felt like a failure in relationships and and then you're asked to take a look at this book of course in miracles um, and you you don't want to do it and you're reading just the first paragraph, and this voice comes to you, right? And, but you were willing to go with the voice. You were willing to listen to the voice. Um, And I had the same experience when I, uh, just at literally the same time, when I, again, had taught at Yale and in the early 70s and come out here on a sabbatical and, um, and left the teaching job at Yale to start a school for delinquent kids out here because I had an inner sense that I should do that. So again, you were involved with the children with the Center for Attitudinal <coughs> Healing. I was involved out here with Full Circle. Um, and, um, and then one day in 1975 and I think it was in the spring, so it might have been around me. I was walking on the mesa and I looked out at this piece of land and I had this powerful, powerful sense uh, that uh, we could create a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth on this site. And and I've tried to listen to that inner voice too. Um, And the thing about inner voices is that um, it often takes courage to listen to them. It took courage to leave a tenure-track job at Yale to start a school for delinquent kids. It took courage, once that was up and started, which was crazy enough, to leave that and start Commonweal. Um, And so you both have described listening to your inner voices which is not always easy. And some of the things I really appreciate about you is that you don't make it sound like it's all, you say it's simple, but it's not easy, which is, it is simple, but it isn't easy. And uh, in your books, um, uh, Jerry, in your voice, you describe um, your relationship with your ego And the relationship of of your spirit self, or whatever you want to describe it, with the ego self. And the conflict between them. And you never pretend that it's all over. In fact, there's one beautiful quote um, from a conversation you had with uh, one of your friends. um, I think it was about The Course in Miracles. And I think he said that if there's ever a sequel, it should be called The Ego Strikes Back. (laughs) <laughs> and you know that sense that that these struggles may shift over time, but we're human and uh, and the ego continues to uh, to be around and very much part of us. And I just like I like the the kind of playfulness, the emphasis on not taking yourself too seriously, the honesty about the struggles that continue to be involved. That it isn't as if once one has read the Course in Miracles or decided that love is the only reality, that the ego goes away, you know. Um, So I just want to say that I appreciate that. What I'd like to focus in on now for a little bit is just the, uh, I mean, telling stories is the most fun and we'll come back to telling stories, but uh, because telling stories is how we learn but we can frame this as a story in a certain sense, that the inspiration was The Course in Miracles, which is a very God-centered book, or actually Christ-centered, God-centered book. Um, But what you created, the Centers for Attitudinal Healing and Attitudinal Healing International, does not use the God language, certainly does not use the Christ language, and in fact is a completely... Uh, non-theological rendition—you don't hide the fact that, of uh, course, *In Miracles* was important to you. In some of your books, you quote from it extensively, but really, you've taken that personal experience and translated it into something that is all over the world. That's used in prisons. That's used in hospitals. That we were just talking last night about the fact that in China, with this crackdown on nonprofits, the attitudinal healing work has continued, you know, because they don't see it as a threat, you know? And uh, I think part of the gift of what you both have done, and Diane, I have a feeling you've had a really strong role in this, is um, that you have created a, a hub system of you know Attitudinal Healing International that makes helps make this available to people um, without any effort to control it, without any effort at quality control. That you say uh, it's never been misused to your knowledge, and um, and that's astonishing. And your books are filled. With letters and anecdotes, just you just keep telling stories about people who've written you a murderer on death row, how uh, Mother Teresa came to let this be deeply connected to her work and how her nuns to this day appreciate it deeply. You know, I'm just fascinated because these kinds of things fascinate me, that you took a deep Christ-centered inspiration and you translated it into a language that was accessible to everybody and then you figured out from the Center for Attitudinal Healing how to let it go worldwide without needing to control it or anything else. And I find that fascinating. I wonder what reflections you both have about how that took place.
3: Well... Oftentimes, as you well know, in your own life, um, our spiritual journey can be like a yo-yo. Right. But I think there's something within each of our hearts, whether we consciously know or not, Mm -hmm. that yearning Mm -hmm. to find that connection with a higher power. Absolutely. That want to feel the experience of oneness with everybody Mm -hmm. and wholeness in a place where we can experience that state of mind where there's only love and fear does not appear. And my guidance when they started this work was to make use of what was something that I had felt a burden in my life, my dyslexia. And to make it clear that it would be written for other people who are dyslexic, if you will, that would be simple enough. So I use cartoons in in Diane. Then use cartoons in a lot of our books to make it to make it more simple and reader uh, friendly, if, if, if you will. So the, the dyslexia helped me do that to to not use a lot of high-powered words. Uh, I'm different, difficult uh, vocabulary, uh, not making it confusing, make it very easy to understand and um, to be vulnerable in, in writing the book. So we, along the way, as you know, um, have shared our dirty linen, if you will, in public. And uh, we've found by doing that other people have found it's more safe if Jerry and, and Diane can can do this. Well, I'm going to open up and, and kind of share things like this. I remember in Australia, Diane were doing a conference, and uh, near the end of the conference, a social worker got up and talked about the incestuous relationship that she'd had with her father.
2: I was in Queensland, and there was like
3: seven and minutes that's left. That we have a few minutes left. Are you going to answer this? No, you
2: answer. Yeah, I'm going to. No, not,
3: do not it look right? at each other, both and not, not sure what we're going to Throw say.
2: Probably quiet, and let answer.
3: And all of a sudden, listening to that inner voice, how many people here have had an incestuous relationship with their father? And I think about 15 people recently. It was incredible. Hand. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to suggest that, because we have to terminate in a few minutes, that so you go to one part of the place here. Enjoy. And talk about starting a group, a support group for you, for yourselves yeah. in this. So uh, I have learned, so as Diane, that um, listening to the inner voice of love oftentimes has nothing to do with an irrational mind. In fact, you're going the opposite of what a rational mind is. You know, the rational mind is, oh, it's impossible to answer this question or even approach it in a few minutes but one of the things that I think's been helpful was a really belief that nothing's impossible and there's always an answer and always the answer is love no matter what the problem is and I think that's been a guided factor in, a, in a writing and uh, uh, in uh, doing our best to uh, walk our walk our pathway, and I know a lot of people come to our lectures not to yeah. not to hear something new. They come to see are, are they really walking their pathway? They tell <laughs> us that they go because you, you,
0: like.
3: you, you, you can't hide the truth. Uh, and if you're having conflict or you're competitive oh, yeah. with each other or, right or whatever, it's going to show up there. So uh, uh, I think the 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 trust that we both have had uh, in a higher power. Uh, and in each other, and the ability to uh, have no secrets, to be transparent, uh, uh, to be translucent, and uh, to remind ourselves that, uh, as we say every morning, that we're the light of the world, and so is everyone else. (laughs)
2: Can I add to that, Jerry? Sure. Uh, I, I'd like to respond about the beginning as you asked, but I'm also remembering um, we we absolutely have no desire to change anybody else. We're just working on healing ourselves. We were it was early on in the early years, it was like 85. Yeah, because that's when Goodbye to Guilt came out. It's one of our first TV shows we've done and it's the universe has been kind. We've done so many. and But this was CNN Nightly News. Oh, I guess it was just when CNN started. It was like a half hour show and it was on Goodbye to Guilt and it was remote and there was a couple that was interviewing us and they had read the book <laughs> and the title was like Goodbye to Guilt. <laughs> oh my God. They were having a party with it and... I'm here, and I'll just tell you a little bit of it. And Jerry's sitting back here. And when they said they hadn't read the book, and they started making these remarks, and I'm thinking, I can't believe Jerry told me to tell all my aunts and uncles in New York that I was going to be on this TV show. <laughs> I, I never told anybody when I was doing so. But he had me, he says, Well, what not you tell your family you're going to be on it?" see? You. And I go, all right. I like, really? And I'm thinking that, oh, my God. I have no idea what we're going to say here. And then I said, oh, Jerry, please know what to say. And he, he's just a great teacher. He was so incredibly defenseless. It was like he had nothing to prove, nothing to change, nothing to defend, just sharing his own experience. I have to tell you, of the hundreds of TV shows that we have done, and presentations, thousands actually, presentations, we have never gotten as much feedback, in those days it was in letters, And everyone pretty much said the same thing. It was unbelievable demonstration in defenselessness. So you never know what people are learning. But that's what I learned that from Jerry that day. It's just, you know, there's a great line from the course that says, In my defenselessness lies my safety. Uh, Anyway, so but going back to the idea, I think one of the reasons that this was, this work has become what it is is. First of all, Jerry's wisdom uh, to not try to control
0: the work. You're listening to part one of a two-part TNS conversation with Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Ciarancioni-Jampolsky.
2: When I met Jerry in 81 coming from business, I said, what do you mean you haven't trademarked it? What, are you, like, crazy? <laughs> and And he said, no, it doesn't belong to me. I said, but you made it up and everything. And he said... Oh, you assimilated. He says, no, it belongs to everyone. And how so I came to understand that, appreciate it, and share that. But Jerry, um, I, like even by 77, 78, you were really clear that people started coming because of it. 79 was 60 Minutes and stuff. And he said, people should not come to something because of a person Maybe you can be inspired by it, but it shouldn't be based on the charisma of a person because that disables people. It should be based on the the core value of what the work is. So you stepped aside and you told the center, I will always be here for you, but I don't want any power and I don't want any voting. And and to this day, he's done that with Attitudinal Healing. And then... When 79 came, and 60 Minutes, and ABC, and all the different networks, and 60 Minutes came out to do a, a, an expose of this psychiatrist working with kids, and it wasn't supposed to be good, but it wound up being tearjerker. It was just beautiful. Morley Sabre did this beautiful piece and went all over the world, to Russia, to Australia. And I think that my experience is that when other people came, they saw that, and they said, Oh, I want to do that in my community. So they came and asked Jerry, you never had a vision of another center. We're not wise enough to figure this stuff out. We just kind of follow what we're guided to. We don't have five-year plans. And people said, well, we want this in in Austin, and we want this in St. Louis, and can you help us do it, or, or can we do it? And Jerry said, yes, here's everything we have. All of our training, our books, our resources, everything. And you, here's, you know, so that's what started it. When they realized they could do it without a Jerry Giampolsky, that's what emboldened the work around the world. And also the applications of it. Jerry started the first group in San Quentin in 1975. Um, I just got a a letter from the warden. We got a letter the other day from the warden. You know, the group is still going. And actually, uh, the uh, partner of our granddaughter is one of the facilitators, and um, so you allowed it and you encouraged it. And when people said, "Do you think we could use it here?" You think we said, "Yes, yes, yes, yes." And that's how it's being used all over. Now it looks like the social workers in China are going to be trained with it. I mean, it has its own wings, its own arms. I think it all generated out of Jerry's understanding that this work belonged to everyone. It was, and it could apply to everyone. And, and you also didn't want, you always said, I don't want someone who has no faith or no belief to feel separate from the work, from your own atheist experiences. And, and so therefore, it's this in this more generic tone. Some people are students, of course, York, most aren't. Uh, other people have all different faiths. The Dalai Lama's main person, Anchak Rinpoche, said it's the closest thing to Buddhism in action. Mother Teresa said, oh, this is our core of our work. It's just very, it's, it's it's like the Dalai Lama says, don't become a Buddhist, just do what you do better. And attitudinal healing is to help people do and be who they are in a better way. Helps them understand the mind, the ego, the way it works, and know that they have choices. The Attitudinal Healing Support Group, of which we have a wonderful group, our our, our uh, elders group, um, that's been meeting for what 25 years, guys? Was it 25 know, years? 25 years, yeah, and continues to this day. The, to me, one of the core ideas of an Attitudinal Healing Support Group, the model is that, unlike a therapeutic model, um, it is a model where you really each contribute to creating an unconditionally loving space. And therefore, people will find their own best answers. Uh, at, we don't pretend to know what's best for another person. Which Jerry said when he got the highest award in medicine in the American um, Medical Association. You know, I realized finally at 80 years of age, I don't, I don't know what's best for another person. Mm-hmm. And um, and in that environment, and using these core universal principles, the principles of attitudinal healing, the 12 of them are. Uh, uh, Helps people find new ways of looking at the world.
1: So let's go through those 12 principles of attitudinal healing.
2: I bet you think we have to memorize
3: them. Memorized.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Jerry and I were saying today, you know, probably people wouldn't believe that we intentionally have not memorized them.
3: I believe you.
2: We just want to draw on them when we need them. Yeah. Um, what would you like to yeah. talk to about yeah. them? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. You, know, you probably all know them, but no, you guys don't either. See? It's like... <laughs> Just like your founder. <laughs> um, what would you like to say about the principles? Would you like well,
1: I think, I think what I would say is that this is the uh, translation from your experience with the Course in Miracles, which was a theological, God-centered, Christ-centered system, to a system that is designed to be accessible to everyone regardless of culture or whatever. And that clearly has been central to its capacity to disseminate around the world. And I think I would add to that, that these principles are uh, incarnations of what Huxley and Leibniz called the perennial philosophy of of (coughs) wisdom or the perennial philosophy, uh, which they said was at the heart of all great spiritual traditions. So I would say that in these, uh, there is nothing new. Uh,
3: That's and that say. is after, well, We after, say after that the, always. Yeah. So Michael, I asked for help when I was doing this, when we started starting the center. I said, help me douse the workbook so that I can pick out 12 principles that don't have any word like holy or, or God or anything in it, so that an atheist, as Diane pointed out, could come to it. And um, uh, I was I'm, I'm amazed, the, the, the the, still the, amazed that... amazed the, <laughs> the That the principles I I, I chose, or no, I didn't chose, but the holy spiritual chose, uh, have been so uh, accepted. Uh, oftentimes in these support groups, uh, the facilitator sees someone going through some real difficulty and uh, will ask, pick Well, pick one of these principles and see if there's one that you could apply to this. And also, often, in a very practical way, that person gets, Aha! And, and I, I think I'd like to emphasize that behind these principles, if one really looks at what attitudinal healing is about, it's about. Letting go of seeing any value in making judgments about ourselves or ourselves, or other people. It's about letting go of seeing any value and believing the past is real, or that guilt is real. And so so much of our work is really based on the simplicity of, of seeing what happens when that happens, and you don't give the power to blame and anger and people's behavior, to make you make judgments, but that you start to see the light in everybody, what is real, and not the, not their not their performance or what they do. So much of the ego world is fighting each other and uh, uh, making the other person wrong. And uh, so, attitude empowers people. Doesn't tell people what to do. Empowers people.
2: Right, doesn't tell anybody what to do. We don't know what somebody should do. Um, can I ask something to that, Jerry? Sure. That when, when we had the, Jerry knew both Helen and Bill, but Bill, the names were never on the, the Course of Miracles of the people who wrote them for decades. Um, and uh, Bill, Thet- Bill Thetford, who was a, a professor of psychology at Columbia, and Helen was his assistant. And um, he was also the, it is also the, uh, editor of the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, which was just quite funny. And um, when Helen started getting this writing, uh, when Bill, you know, Bill was complaining about the department being so dysfunctional, and he said, there must be another way. And Helen took his hand and said, Bill, I'm willing to help you find it. And within a week, she started getting this download. Thought she was crazy too. And Bill said, Well, just bring it in. I'll type it up. If it doesn't mean anything, we'll throw it away. And that went on for six and a half years. Um, so uh, that was in 65. And the, they were published in 75 when Jerry and Judy took it to the publisher. But I'm saying all that because Jerry said to Bill, God, these books are like so big. And I'm dyslexic. And there's so many definitions of a miracle in it. What's your definition of a miracle?
3: Well, I edit it a little differently. Oh, you <laughs> go ahead. Edit it, Jerry. You know, I'm dyslexic. Pretend like you're talking to a nine-year-old and give me a definition because I don't really understand all the, the 50 principles. And without batting an eye, he said...
2: He said, a miracle is a shift in perception that removes the blocks to the awareness of love's presence in our lives.
3: One more time, Dan.
2: A miracle is a shift in perception that removes the blocks to the awareness of love's presence in our lives.
3: So we feel that miracles are continuing to play a big part in them, as they are in yours. And I think the work you're doing, the work we're doing, uh, and the people that come, uh, is that um, we're in a flow of energy that comes from higher power. Yeah. You know, before you read
1: those, because you make a point of the fact that but I want to talk about my own experience for a minute in immersing myself in your work and in The Course in Miracles. Yes. First of all, it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly um, the heart of it I completely agree with, and we've talked about this, that in my own language, from my own background, that there is one truth and many paths to the truth, that love is at the center of all of it, that um, finding a path to inner peace in your life is central, that forgiveness is central. Many of the principles. But I also discover that... um, well, first of all, that I can't live up to all the principles, uh, you know. That, uh, and I, I mean this in an honest way. That that the two of you are clearly more able to live by all the principles than I am. And secondly, in that regard, that I think for me um, the. Play of darkness and light in our lives is something that I acknowledge as something uh, something real um, for you. What, what do you mean, real? Well, let me get there. It's it's real on a secondary dimension from the the, the I believe that it's clearly true, that in human life, that love is the most powerful force. I go beyond that to believe that actually, and I won't go through all the cosmology, that the universe is alive and that it's based on the principles of love. That That's my view of the universe. Uh, so I believe that. But I also believe that there is a place for darkness as well as light in life. That um, that shadow and light have a relationship that create the dynamic in stories. Uh, my yoga teacher Swami Satchidananda used to say <laughs> that you need you need the villain in the piece. You know yes, that I, without I the villain in the that. piece, there is no drama. Mm. And um, and I know for myself that. I can't spend all my time, and it doesn't feel whole or real for me, uh, to only try to live in the light of love. That I like espionage stories. I like detective novels. I like to read about politics and what's happening in the world. I like to engage with the struggle. Um, And so I'm just, I'm not diverting us, I hope, from the conversation, but simply acknowledging that for me, um, I need that other dimension of um, engagement with the struggle between darkness and light. I, I need uh, I love uh, I love the secondary reality of politics and 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 an engagement with that which is not right in the world the um, so that um, so what you've done is completely <clears throat> extraordinary that by putting out principles of pure love, forgiveness, and so forth, you've created this global, uh, a network of enormous power for me in my life although we're, what we're trying to do with healing circles is so deeply similar I can't even put it into words but for me in my life um, I can't spend all the time in the light it doesn't work for me does anybody it may, what
2: does anybody
1: well I don't know but what I'm saying is that that I need to affirm that I need to affirm the presence of that play of dark and light as a principle, as opposed to, in this sense, affirming that love is the only reality. I believe that love is the, the, the greatest reality at the highest level. That's what we Yeah. Go. But for me, in living my life, I don't think I could live it the way the two of you do. I don't think I could live it with the constant In other words, you get up at four o'clock in the morning, you lie beside each other in bed, and you hold hands and you say a prayer. You get up and you do this, you know, swing dancing. You you, you read a passage from The Course in Miracles and try to lead your life according to it all through the day. I I don't think I could live with that much continuous light in my life. I need to read the New York Times.
2: Every I read the New need York Times at 7.30 to, yeah, <laughs>
1: Every I day, need to listen to NPR, you know. I, NPR. I need to, all right. So I'm just, I think the reason I'm doing this is that I think I actually serve a useful function in the conversation, because just as you said, the thing about the incest survivors, you know, there were so many of those. There are so many of us listening to this that are thinking, that's astonishing, that's beautiful. But guess what? I'm not at that point. Oh, okay. So this, there's so, where the you correction lies. I'm, I'm, I'm okay.
2: speaking for the unwanted opportunity. You said it's so, you said you know, it's so great. Uh, but, you want
3: to go you know, first, Jerry? I, yeah, what, what's, uh, I really appreciate the clarity of, of yeah. what, where you are. Yeah. And uh, I have no desire to change you in any way. Thank you. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> because no. if I did have a desire, I would give you the power to make me upset. And I don't want to be upset I I want to be peaceful. I'm so impressed with that part of your life Mm -hmm. that everyone that knows you feels so inspired, not by you, but by the work and all the people that are here and and the love that that is, is there. And I think most people tend to see that and that there's something inside of all of us that want to inspire ourselves to inspire others. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, that is that is real. Mm-hmm. That is real. And uh, we aren't suggesting that we be models and that other people oh, that should get it, get it before. What a setup. But, but we, do, <laughs> we do ask that to be, that it's helpful to be aware that, we're not victims of our environment. Mm-hmm. We're not victims of darkness. that, that light is stronger than, 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 than darkness. Absolutely. And that we are here to do our best to inspire ourselves and, and other people to inspire themselves. But people have to deal with them, their own mind as, as if it's everyone's mind. And if they start doing that and start believing that it's only their own thoughts and attitudes that hurt them, they might be willing to take a look at every belief system they think they have and take a new look at it.
2: Mm-hmm. Can I answer that, Jerry? Mm-hmm. So, I think it's funny uh, when we're talking about the the idea of being human, being in the human mm-hmm. world, because. Um, a lot of people, it, it doesn't, there's no judgment, it doesn't matter what they do, avoid politics and stuff like that because they, do, they want to live in the light and all this. Jerry and I have done politics as a spiritual practice. And in order to do that, we made ourselves watch every minute, every minute take of the entire Republican conference convention. Get <laughs> points for that, right? The entire Democratic and the other two, independent and green. And we can, did it. Can I
3: interrupt just a second? Yeah, me? sure, go ahead. Why we did that is that there are days that Diane walked into my living room, our living room, and saw me yelling at the television. <laughs> 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 and there are other days I saw Diane doing this. You lying set.
2: sock up, you so know what? Said,
3: <laughs> if we believe that nothing's impossible, yeah. then we need to look at the possibility that we can go through a, a debate without making judgments and be peaceful throughout that.
2: Right. Which we did not accomplish.
3: That, that, so we that, could, that, that,
2: that but we kept doing it. Why? Why? But see, this is our practice. It's like we, we've we always, we face, we go. We go to where the differences were in Russia and China and in Nicaragua and whatever. And look at it. Look at the face. And uh, and then see it. What is this? Where is it? This growth for me. And they... And the, so this season, this political season, has been extraordinary for us, and the challenges of it, because we uh, are, we feel relatively well-informed mm-hmm. and uh, make ourselves that way. In order to not make judgments, we certainly have our own opinions about what we would vote for, not vote for, work for. That's different than the judgment of the being, per se. I can be in direct conflict with, um, and when my ego takes over, I just want to, like, you know, wring this person's neck. So. What the practice for me has been, and we may have shared this at dinner, but um, I've had two huge experiences, which I'll say briefly, in this season of politics this year. And one is with ISIS. And uh, about uh, five months ago, um, I could feel the anxiety, the fear, the beheadings, all that was kind of like creeping in. And I thought, okay, I'm feeling so separate, incredibly separate from every one of these primarily young men in, in ISIS, and I wanted to find a way to heal that. Not that I agree with them or support them or anything like that, not that I don't you know, condemn what's being done, but at a higher level, at this level, how can I connect? If I think we are one, if I really believe we're one, then there are no exceptions. No one's outside the circle. And um, so what I would do each morning in my meditation, I told Jerry I was doing it, I would see the worst image I could, which is the young man with the black hood, with the machete, ready to decapitate the journalist, which he did. And it would give me shivers when I would look at it. And so I would bring it into my meditation each morning, each morning, trying to heal it. I didn't know what healing looked like, though. Mm-hmm. But I knew somehow that he is a part of me, and that's the part that I wanted to join on. And then... One morning, one morning, just, I had this extraordinary experience of in front of that image just came up this incredible vision of what I call the Christ consciousness, Mm -hmm. and beatific and beautiful, filled with love and light, radiance, in front of the image of the young man. And I remember in my mind's eye going, is he back there? I was trying to see, because I could see the outline of the black behind him, but I couldn't really see him. I could only see this image. And from then on, it flooded this image. This is all I can see. And I no longer felt any fear and started to take it at a whole other level. And likewise, I had an experience, um, which I needed to desperately do, uh, uh, with one of the candidates, uh, Donald Trump, who was, the things that were being said, etc. was really rising up inside of me. And I said, okay, where can I join with him? Because if he's the only other, as long as there's an other, because that's attitudinal healing, teaches even children, what does the other mean to you? Um, so what I did was I did the same thing. And what came to me wasn't a beatific vision at all. Oh, that would have been nice. Um, what came to me was, oh, everything that he says and represents, it's what I see in the world. And as I believe, I perceive, I project, what do I see? And I began to see differently and realize my role here isn't to judge him. My role is to be clear about myself and what I believe and think. But my, my, what I went for was where am I connected to him? And at this level, I'm deeply connected. He is me. Mm-hmm. And I no longer fan- felt the anxiety. I could listen to them all saying what they're doing, listen to it, hear it, evaluate it. But at a core level, I didn't feel separate. So to me, Attitudinal Healing course, in Miracles, the message is about separation and about joining. And at what level do we do that? And uh, to me, there's only one fear in the entire world. You could give it all these different faces, fear of losing your child or your spouse or wars or ISIS or whatever. But to me, fear equates with separation Mm -hmm. from something and someone. And all of this has to do with bodies. If you take bodies out of the equation nothing exists there. It's all about bodies. And so to me, where is my real separation when I'm feeling separate here and there? And it's from here. When I feel separate here, it projects out in all these ways. And when I feel healed here, I can find a way to heal with others. And that to me is the journey. That is a very active journey for us. We, I, want to, I don't want to say we struggle with it because we kind of don't care if we make it or not mm-hmm. with a thought. We don't evaluate how good we are at it. Mm-hmm. We never go oh, it's terrible. No, it's like, oh, wow, look at that. Look what I did. It's sort of, we take the judgment off of ourselves. So that, I think, is probably, hopefully, a clarification of our
3: journey. And we stay in the present, not the outcome.
2: Yeah, not in the outcome, and, yeah. and also not in the past. As path. a
3: physician and scientist, right. I outcome is really important. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
3: No, I concentrate on the present, right. not the outcome. You know,
1: there's a metaphysical dimension to this um, conversation um, that when I was researching uh, uh, The Course in Miracles for our conversation, there's a very elegant, interesting critique. And there are some critiques that don't interest me much. um, But this critique was, um, was The Course in Miracles really what in metaphysical terms is called a non-dualistic philosophy or was it actually a dualistic philosophy and this critique argued that it was actually a dualistic philosophy masquerading as a non-dualistic philosophy and the argument was that because it said that the only reality is love that that which is not love is creates the dualism Uh, And whereas the non-dualistic philosophy in this view would encompass everything, that all is God, all is God, all the darkness, all the light, every manifestation of everything is God. And this argument was that the Course in Miracles, by saying that love was the only true reality, created uh, a dualism. And I don't, again... In Jerry's sense, those are fancy words; those are mind games. It doesn't really matter.
2: I do have a thought on it.
1: Yeah, but yeah.
2: So it's interesting because just last week I was sitting next to Gloria Wapnick, who Ken Wapnick's her husband, her late yeah. husband, yeah. who received the manuscripts and right. gave it to Judy. You gave it to right. to Jerry, and um, <laughs> she asked the same question. Mm-hmm. We we're sitting at a lunch, and she just kind of whipped it in between the salad and the and the meal. I, I thought, God, this is I should have had a little preparation for this. And here you are asking something similar. But it was interesting what what we were talking about because everything, even consciousness, is dualistic. Mm-hmm. And um, but beyond the, the course says beyond the consciousness, then is knowledge. So you could take out love and fear and all that. But there's consciousness which has duality in it. Uh, but knowledge just is, and however that might be defined. So I think ultimately, it's not dualistic, but I think in the world that we live in, everything is a duality, and everything is a, is a part of that. I mean, the pie crust and the pie are dualistic, but they create together this wonderful dessert, which is, I think, our humanity and our life, the key is, are we afraid of the shadow? Do we avoid the shadow? Or do we look at the shadow and see it for what it is? That's, I think, the difference. Attitudinal healing, I think, gives you the courage to look at the shadow in your, your life. And so do many other traditions. And not be afraid of it, but to see it maybe for what it is.
3: There are a couple of things in the course that's been helpful for me. More than a couple, but two I'd uh, like to mention. One is its definition of the truth. And it defines the truth is something that is changeless. Doesn't change. And yet if we start looking at fear and everything that we see, all the form that we see in so many forms, changes all the time. So for us, that becomes an illusion. Not really real. It's an altered state of, of what we thought we were. And uh, I think we're all the truth, and then really, we're all that oneness. And that there's nothing that can separate us when we're in that kind of consciousness. But we go back to the consciousness of the ego and try to combine that with this. Uh, I think we have a tendency to compare, Mm-hmm. which causes cancer of the soul, or do other things. And I think uh, we need to be comfortable, as you are, about where you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think for each, I hope that everyone here is, doesn't feel that uh, uh, what we have found helpful to us is mm-hmm. necessarily going to be helpful to you. That mm-hmm. uh, we do think the wake-up call for all of us is to believe that there may be another way of looking at the world. And that's how the course started. Mm
2: -hmm. And I think the the first principle, um, uh, I'm not going to read through them here, but the first principle, the essence of our being is love, is so profound. Because when we come back to that, that the true essence is love, and everything else is how we are, and... In the world but th- the second one i think is really powerful that and this is why we wind up in the medical schools and hospitals etc uh that we define it as a course of health true health is inner peace and true healing is the letting go of fear and my great teachers were in the i facilitated the aids group we had the first aid support group in the probably the world, at the center. And I was in it for five and a half years. How many people died? Their- a little over 80 in, our, in the course of it. And so we had a lot of life and death and experiences, etc. And these beautiful beings um, really taught me that their health was not the state of their body. Their health was really, this, the goal of Attitudinal Healing isn't to get bodies well. It's to heal our minds. Bodies sometimes follow often often do, often don't, is, but it's the state of our mind. So that before they died, that they had found inner peace, which is the essence of health to us, and that they were completely healed and whole because they had let go of fear. So working with life-threatened illnesses, as you do and as we do, um, and so many people at the center have come to will, um, that's really very helpful. And it, it's... Um, it's also been extremely helpful for physicians, nurses, healthcare practitioners. We worked with San Francisco General from the you know year AIDS was named in '82. Worked with the, the staff, they're still all friends to this day. Um, and they started with six healthcare workers and 100 patients. And by the time they got to 100 healthcare workers and 3,000 patients, 2,000 of which had died, they were completely burned out and fried. And they said, "Oh my God, we can't. How do we do this? Everybody's dying." And so in our, work, in our work together with them, very deep work over the years, they changed their goal. Their goal was no longer to save lives. Their intention was to save lives with all their skills, but their goal was peace of mind. And they brought that then to their patients instead of their fear or their feelings of inadequacy, because if a physician's goal is to just save someone's life and they fail, this person becomes their enemy. And so their their theme, we were just reminded of this at dinner the other night, he said our theme in the hallways of 5A at San Francisco General was I can choose peace instead of this. You know, but it was very, it's very powerful.
3: I think it's important to mention how we set that up. We set it up that we'd be glad to come there with no charge, providing that everyone can come there, the janitor, the nurses, secretaries, and providing that you leave your MD outside the door so they wouldn't be giving advice and all the other kinds of stuff that doctors like to do. So they are all, we had the one Well, thing they and didn't come. want to do that though.
2: They said, oh no, that'll never work. No, and we yeah. said, that's the only way we'll come. Yeah. But then they changed their mind. They changed their mind. It was really powerful when we realized we're all experiencing the same Mm -hmm. thing, which is fear of separation, fear of loss.
1: Mm -hmm. Why don't we close the morning by asking you to go through the 12 principles of attitudinal healing. Okay.
2: Well, we've mentioned the first one already, that the essence of our being is love. And the second, which is health is inner peace and healing is the letting go of fear. I always thought if you really got the first one, you wouldn't need the other 11. I've always felt that. If I can remember that, but I don't remember it all the time. Um, The third one is giving and receiving are the same, which sounds simple when we learn it, right? We have folks here from the center. We know we live with that all the time, and it always comes to bless us. Uh, The fourth is we can let go of the past and the future. It's a choice. Five, now is the only time there is, and each instant is forgiving. Six, we can learn to love ourselves and others by forgiving rather than judging. Seven, we can become love finders rather than fault finders. Eight, we can choose and direct ourselves to be peaceful inside, regardless of what's happening outside. Nine. That
3: might be the toughest one to all.
2: Right. That is, there's miracle stories around that principle. Um, We are students and teachers to each other. Ten. We can focus on the whole of life rather than this fragments. Eleven. Since love is eternal, death need not be viewed as Fearful. And 12, we can always perceive ourselves and others as either extending love or that they're fearful, giving a call of help for love.
1: So we have a principle at Commonweal that when something particularly beautiful is read, we read it twice. Would you read it one more time? The last one?
2: No, all 12. Oh, I'd be happy to. <laughs> wow, I love that. I love that. Doing it your own way. I think it was Ram Dass that had a conference when, uh, and he just you're, kind you're of meditated of through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. The 12 principles of attitudinal healing. One, the essence of our being is love. Two, health is inner peace and healing is the letting go of fear. three, Giving and receiving are the same. Four, we can let go of the past and of the future. Five, now is the only time there is, and each instant is forgiving. Six, we can learn to love ourselves and others by forgiving rather than judging. Seven, we can become love finders rather than fault finders. Eight, we can choose and direct ourselves to be peaceful inside, regardless of what is happening outside. Nine, we are students and teachers to each other. Ten, we can focus on the whole of life rather than the fragments. Eleven, since love is eternal, death need not be viewed as fearful. And twelve, we can always perceive ourselves and others as either extending love or fearful, giving a call of help for love.
1: Could we all just sit in silence for a few moments and then when, we're, whenever the two of you were called to it, if you would close with uh, a prayer or uh, something you'd like to say, we'll just close with some words after silence.
2: Jerry's asked me to conclude with something he wrote that I will read for him. If you can keep your eye, you're welcome to keep your eyes closed if you like. It's at
3: the end of
2: the book. It's at the end of Aging with Attitude Every Step of the Way. To age with attitude is to age with grace and to be positive about our lives it's to no longer see any value in hurting another person or yourself with words or with actions. It's to consider that death is but an illusion and a doorway to a higher consciousness. Aging with attitude is to be free of fear and of making others wrong. Aging with attitude is another way of looking at the world. It's to make forgiveness as important as breathing. And to love all others as you would love yourself. Aging with Attitude celebrates love every step of the way by living in the present and choosing to be happy, peaceful, guiltless, judgeless, and to be able to laugh at yourself and the world you see.
1: Jerry Jampolsky, Diane Sirenciani Jampolsky, thank you for being with us
3: at the new school. And I'd like to thank everyone who may be leaving for other reasons uh, for being here today and bringing your love and light to this sacred morning. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to part one of a two-part TNS conversation with Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Cherencioni-Jampolsky. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein, Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.